Folks, welcome to the Hemonic Pulse, the podcast that allows you to keep your fingers on the pulse of all things hematology. This is your host, Dr. Shadi Naban, a hematologist and a medical oncologist. I appreciate you tuning in. I appreciate you supporting the Hemonic Pulse podcast, which was started at ASH 2022, and we are just around ASH 2023. Today's podcast is with Dr. Callie Coombs from University of California in Irvine, talking about CHIP clonal hematopoiesis of indeterminate potential. You should know about this. I am not going to give it away, but this is a very important and hot topic uh, for patients who undergo next-generation sequencing and you find something and you really are wondering whether this is something that is real or just simply uh, a clonal hematopoiesis that happens because of age or prior therapy or things of that nature. And here we go. Without further ado, Dr. Kelly Coombs on the Hemonk Pulse podcast. Tell us about you a little bit. Let's get the listeners to know a little bit about who Dr. Coombs is. Yeah, so um, I uh, go by Callie. Um, I'm uh, legally Catherine Coombs, um, and um, I am an associate clinical professor at UC Irvine now, but I've kind of been all over. I grew up in Ohio. Um, I did residency at Duke and then fellowship at Sloan Kettering, which I just was thinking about. It It was 10 years ago that I started fellowship. Um, Straight from there, I uh, was faculty at UNC for six years. I loved it there. However, I did um, get... uh, Uh, brought to California by my spouse, who's from San Diego area. And I started UCI just a little over a year ago. And it's been a huge adjustment. I think I uh, previously have been uh, much a consumer of podcasts now that I have a long commute to work. So it's good to now be on the other end and uh, be recording one with you today. And you'll be potentially listening to yourself now when you are uh, uh, after we air this. So is there a story about Catherine becoming Callie or is this not a story for podcasts? Oh, no, that is a story. So it never became Callie. Um, my full name is Catherine Callahan Coombs. And so I think there's different uh, varieties of Callies. And so um, hopefully I don't make this too long. But, you know, I'm the, the Irish variant. Um, Callahan is a family name. And my parents just always called me Callie from birth. Um, to put in a tip with Ash um, coming up soon, uh, the other variety of Callie is Calliope, the Greek variant. And actually one of the best restaurants in San Diego is called Callie. So I went there for my 40th birthday um, just this year and it is amazing. So it may be too late to get a reservation, but uh, just to put in a, a tip wow. for a restaurant here. I love that story. Um, so Callie, in, in your... In your um role at University of California in Irvine, you focus specifically on what? Like what, what's your academic interest mainly? You know, um, since becoming faculty at UNC in 2016, I actually did a bit of a shift from what I did as a fellow to what I you know, now majorly focus on, which is CLL, which actually brings me back to my residency research at Duke, where I also had an interest in CLL from straight out of medical school. Um, So I I love CLL, I love the patients and what a great field to um, have as a focus because our therapeutics are so effective and our patients live so long. And that's something I really value about being a hemoc provider is uh, developing these longitudinal relationships with patients. However, you know, when I was at Sloan Kettering, um, that was um, prior to Anthony Mato arriving, um, though we actually have become uh, collaborators since 
Um, he did get to Sloan Kettering shortly after I left, but you know, there wasn't a really feel focused CLL person there. And so I actually shifted a bit and did myeloid research as a fellow, even though I liked CLL all along. So I uh, was mentored by uh, Marty Tallman and Ross Levine. And my focus while I was there was actually in uh, clonal hematopoiesis, which was a burgeoning uh, field. I remember I presented um, a chip poster um, at ASH in 2015 uh, for the first time, and there wasn't even a chip category. And so it's looking through the, the ASH abstracts now, it's amazing what a huge field this has become. Obviously, I wasn't the first person to study chip, but you know, it was really kind of under the radar. And now I think it's just amazing how much research you know many others have done. And so it's not my main research focus now, but having had this longstanding interest, including you know early on in my days as a fellow, it's something that I've followed and, you know, I do think the implications are really wide reaching, especially as a hemoc practitioner, I think because, you know, NGS is such a huge part of what we do. And so um, whether you are looking for CHIP or not, um, and I don't advocate testing for it broadly, you know, I don't think the benefit justifies the cost the cost being both financial and anxiety, because there's not really an intervention to take it away um, or, you know, to change the natural history. But, you know, it can often come up incidentally. And so that's been a focus of a, a bit of my uh, research, even, you know, going past fellowship is, you know, what do you do with these incidental findings and, and what do they mean? And so that's something that I continue to follow. And so, you know, most patients that I see in my clinic are CLL. That's my major area of, uh, you know, clinical focus, clinical trials. I do um, always uh, have uh, joy in seeing patients with CHIP, um, given that I'm, you know, I'd say pretty well informed on, you know, what are the implications when this is found, um, most typically as an incidental finding. So let's 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 start just kind of level the, the level set a little bit. A what is CHIP and B, when did CHIP even become something like you mentioned the poster years back? So when we say CHIP, what are we, what do we, what are we actually talking about? And when did it become kind of like mainstream? Because now you kind of like, you know, a lot of people talk about, I, I honestly don't think five, six years ago, anybody was talking about it. Yeah. So I, you know, people have known about clonal hematopoiesis for a long time. I think back into the 90s, um, Lambert Booth's had uh, some work uh, done um, looking at just um, non-random X inactivation in females as a surrogate for clonal hematopoiesis. However, it didn't really become mainstream until the widespread use of next-gen sequencing. And so I would say the really um, high-profile papers that brought this into the mainstream actually were in uh, the end of 2013, um, published um, in a companion uh, fashion in the New England Journal of Medicine. Um, one was uh, Sid Jayswall's uh, paper looking at CHIP in a large uh, cohort of, I don't know, 10,000 some uh, folks um, uh, demonstrating the detriment to OS and also linking it to adverse cardiovascular outcomes. And then there was another paper in that uh, same journal um, by uh, another group uh, finding similar uh, things. Not only does it lead to shorter OS, which was somewhat of a surprise, uh, but also unsurprisingly linked to an increase in the risk of cardiovascular uh, uh, mortality and morbidity. And so since then, there have been a number of mechanistic uh, trials, including a follow-up paper in the New England Journal, um, helping um, understand um, the mechanism uh, by which these uh, individuals affected uh, by these mutations have uh, an increase in their cardiovascular uh, mortality and morbidity, uh, which is primarily due to increased inflammatory signaling. Um, a lot of different, uh, you know, elegant mouse models have been uh, done to establish this uh, increased signaling through the NLRP3 inflammasome and to knockouts leading to increased plaque formation, etc. So anyway, 
um, a nice position paper was put out uh, by uh, David Steenzema, uh, one of my uh, favorite Twitter buddies, um, and I think one of the best writers uh, that I know in medicine, kind of defining uh, this term chip, which, you know, does have its um, uh, proponents. Um, and there are obviously are people that like other terms. Um, some people were trying to put out this term arch, age-related clonal hematopoiesis, but I think Chip is the one that's stuck. And so he uh, defined this um, among other co-authors um, who have done a lot of the early research. Um, so it stands for clonal hematopoiesis of indeterminate potential, but kind of just said, um, number one, uh, the mutations have to have some, you know, minimum threshold, which they defined as a variant frequency of 2% or greater. Two, they have to be um, in genes known to be important in heme uh, malignancies. But three, they can't meet criteria for heme malignancy. And then four, they can't have um, cytopenias, because then you would use this other term, CCUS, clonal cytopenia of undetermined significance. So, yeah, I'd say it be started becoming mainstream kind of Kind of, you know, in that era, which is, you know, right when I was doing my fellowship, and then, you know, the research really has just kind of um, blossomed um, exponentially since that time with drastic um, implications in all areas of health. I actually gave a grand rounds um, at uh, my last year at UNC kind of talking about chip and medicine. And I tried to get, you know, some sort of interest from every internal medicine subspecialist because there's a role for chip in the kidney. There's a role for chip in COPD. Um, you know, and some of these are just associations. I it, you know, I think that's one of the things you always have to be on the watch for with chip research. Is it just an association or is it really causal? And, um, you know, I think that kind of depends on what, you know, the link or um, uh, project is, is about and, you know, what studies have been done. But that's always something I'm on the lookout for when I'm kind of interpreting chip uh, research. Before we go into a little bit of the, you know, kind of few abstracts that you saw that were intriguing at ASH uh, 2023, um, I'm pretty sure that folks who are listening to this are wondering, you know, when you get a report about NGS or like just, you know, again, mutational analysis, biomarkers of a patient who is undergoing the test for whatever type of cancer, how do you know whether that is the, the, the reported genetic alteration, is it a pathogenic one that is like a real deal versus a chip, like you said, clonal hematopoiesis of indeterminate potential. Help us understand this, or is it sometimes you just don't know and you just have like how, you know, again, uh, I, I want to put yourself in the shoes of non-specialized hematologists who is seeing these patients. Uh, how, how do they differentiate? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of ways to look at these reports. Um, and I, I would say chip mutations are kind of pathogenic. Um, so it's not whether they are or aren't pathogenic. Um, I think they're pathogenic in the sense that, yes, there is this association with cardiovascular mortality um, and, you know, these other health associations increase risk of heme malignancy. But, you know, number one, not all mutations are created equal. And so I think um, uh, the work on the CH risk score has helped kind of better define, you know, which mutations are, are you know, really bad versus maybe just a little bad. Um, and that is perhaps the difference between um, a TP53 mutation versus kind of a run-of-the-mill DNMT3A mutation that's not in the hot spot. Um, but, you know, I think any mutation that you're convinced is like a real mutation, and, you know, maybe there's a more elegant way of putting that, um, is something to, to pay attention to. So the things that I look at is they're, they're also kind of what I would say are not real mutations. And again, it's, it's not the best word, but um, like TET2, for example, um, is 
a gene where occasionally you'll see these. Um, it, it, I think the one thing is how well are your molecular reports annotated? Um, and then do they report the variant frequency? But the mutations that I usually don't pay too much attention to that I don't consider as pathogenic are the ones that are more benign germline variants. And so the hints to whether or not a mutation is a benign germline variant is if it's um, uh, present at a variant frequency close to 50%, um, as opposed to some, you know, lower variant frequency. So most of the chip mutations aren't completely um, clonal. They're subclonal in some sense. They're not present in every single gene. They're present in a clone. And so the VAF could be, you know, the minimum De, uh, defined uh, VAF by the definition of chip is 2%, but maybe they're 8%, maybe they're 10%, but 50%, you kind of wonder, well, maybe this is just some, you know, noise where this person's germline sequence doesn't um, match with the reference sequence, but it's not, not actually changing the function of the gene. And so usually at least the molecular reports from the institutions I've worked at or the vendors I've sent to will define, is this a pathogenic, likely pathogenic, then those are the ones I pay attention to? Or is it just a variant of an unknown significance? And you can cross-reference those with a lot of different databases, because obviously, you know, what we learn are about genes, you know, continues to evolve. Um, but that's what I pay attention to. Number one, the variant low frequency. Two, which gene is it? Some genes are worse than others as far as the hierarchy of, is this a really, you know, worrisome chip? where the risk of hemolignancy is high, or is this maybe kind of more of run-of-the-mill age-related association, which if it's in isolation, um, doesn't lead to, you know, too much added risk for the patient. And then, of course, there are other higher risk features. Um, the one that comes to mind is presence of multiple mutations, uh, et cetera. But it, it's not easy. Um, and I have seen reports where they don't specify the variant low frequency. Um, I'd say reports more often nowadays do. They don't specify the likely pathogenicity, which again is usually based on how often has this gene been mutated in cancer? Does it lead to a loss of function depending on which gene is TAT2A, SXL1? Usually those are loss of function, whereas you know, a lot of DNMT3As are hotspots, but there are also loss of functions there, um, et cetera. So what is it doing to the gene, whether there's a real mutation or not, or as you say, pathogenic, um, or is it just kind of a fluff that, you know, maybe is like a nothing mutation, a variant of uncertain significance? This is very, very helpful. The, the, I genuinely say this is one of the best explanations I've heard pertaining to how you look at, at these chips. So let, let's move on a little bit to, you know, I, I mean, I always tell my listeners, there are thousands and thousands of abstracts at ASH. We understand all of these things. No one can cover everything. And I always tell my guests, look, it's your choice. You may have seen one abstract that you think is worthwhile just mentioning. You may have seen three, you may have seen two. So it's totally your call. Tell us maybe a couple of things that caught your attention at ASH 2023 pertaining to what we were just talking about. I would say it's 100% agreement that ASH is so overwhelming. There are so many abstracts. And so, you know, I look through which ones are my favorites. Well, I can't pick even three. Um, there's probably a lot more than that. But because um, no one wants to hear my voice uh, for an hour, I'm going to just focus on a couple of my favorites. Um, and, you know, it, it kind of drills down into my main interest going forward with CHIP. One is, are we ever going to be able to intervene on CHIP? Um, it's interesting to know about, but are there any, you know, interesting studies that may, um, you know, later be developed into some type of intervention? And then two, practical. Um, what are the practical implications of CHIP in uh, the scenarios where it's most commonly 
picked up. So tackling the question of, are there any interventions for CHIP? So there's nothing in humans, and I know this is a clinical podcast, so I don't want to spend too much time on this one, but I will say one that I'll be um, very interested um, to uh, hear the talk on is uh, by uh, Dr. Prutch um, and co-authors, including um, a few folks uh, from uh, Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. And so this will be an oral presentation on Monday uh, where they look at um, mechanisms and therapeutic strategies to reverse TET2 mutant clonal hematopoiesis and uh, the associated risk of atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. And so just to take a step back, um, there you know, are a lot of different mutations one can see in CHIP, but the most common is DNT3A followed by TET2. Um, TET2, however, is the one that has the strongest mechanistic link with cardiovascular disease. And so I think it's very reasonable to study um, a model of TET2 in order to see, is there a way to reverse the cardiovascular um, adverse um, downstream consequences of CHIP. Um, and so um, this abstract that I'm going to mention um, uh, looks actually at this drug uh, called, um, I'm going to butcher the way it's pronounced. Oh, no. <laughs> so it's um, it's a selective um, nuclear um, export inhibitor, Eltonexor. And so I think it's a cousin of Selenexor. Um, my hope is that if this ever goes into um, human trials and ship, it, you know, has to meet what I would call the criteria to ever be studied in CHIP, which is it has to be well tolerated. And so, you know, I don't know a ton about the drug. I have seen Selenex or even dating back to its uh, phase one trials and certainly not the most benign drug with respect to its toxicity. And nonetheless, this is a newer version of that drug. And so, um, you know, if they could find a way um, to make it a very well tolerated drug, I think it could be interesting in CHIP because what they found in their study is that um, when uh, they look at these uh, tattoo um, uh, mice where they just essentially transplanted in tattoo knockouts into mice. They found that uh, a treatment with this uh, Eltonexor selectively reduced the tattoo mutant circulating monocytes, um, but it didn't have any effect on the overall total white blood count, meaning, you know, maybe this could hopefully not have an increase in infection risk by being too myelosuppressive. Um, but they did another uh, study uh, looking at a mouse model um, that they got fed a high cholesterol diet and they showed that treatment with this drug um, selectively reduced the amount of plaque formation in the mice with the TET2 knockout. And part of me wondered, oh, is that because this drug is associated with nausea, you know, decreased appetite? But they actually didn't find the same correlation in the TET2 wild type mouse. So, you know, I think that'll be interesting. Obviously, I'll need to hear the presentation and, um, you know, maybe learn a bit more about its development in humans to see if it meets these other criteria to be ever considered as a chip drug. Because what we don't want to do is harm healthy people. And so any drug that potentially may be developed in chip, you know, I think it should be focused on the highest risk chip and then should have an excellent safety profile. Um, but, you know, always um, interested to see these types of preclinical studies, um, you know, whether they make it to humans or not, because maybe they can, you know, help us um, understand more about um, uh, chip mechanisms. So and that's the earlier, one. Yeah. And to your earlier point, I mean, we know that age, you know, as people get older, um, you know, there's um, more the prevalence of chip uh, um, mutations uh, is obviously higher. So as we get older, you'll have, I presume we need to be highly selective which patient with chip might be eligible for whatever early intervention we're doing because, you know, uh, if it's age-related and even if it is something that might increase the risk of whether it's cardiovascular disease or potentially uh, future malignancy, 
the question is uh, how long does that take and whether the life expectancy really justifies um, early intervention so I, I can see the I can see the challenges in designing some of these studies as they make it into humans yeah, absolutely. So I know another drug that um, they've looked into is this canakinumab, and there are some subset analyses from the large Cantos cardiovascular trial that uh, just got published in blood as well. So, you know, I, I think, it, yes, I think safety is number one, two, and three with any um, intervention we're going to do on people with CHIP, because these are not patients. I always try to be very careful to call them individuals. This is an incidental finding. Yes, it probably has health implications, but it's you know, I wouldn't call them a, a patient. It's not really a disease in my view. Right, right. Okay. What else did you see? Okay. So, you know, one of the other interests is um, what are the implications when we find CHIP in uh, folks uh, with cancer? Because it often comes up as an incidental finding. And can that help us with our risk benefit discussion of any of, you know, the interventions that we're routinely using? And so, um, a group from City of Hope actually um, have a presentation also on Monday. Um, it'll be an oral presentation looking at clonal hematopoiesis after an autologous uh, hematopoietic stem cell transplant for lymphoma. And so there actually have been a number of studies looking at CHIP in the setting of lymphoma, showing worse outcomes um, in many of these uh, studies. Um, and so what I thought was unique about this, uh, the first author is Junwa Ri, is that um, they actually looked at um, the implications with respect to cardiovascular risk. Um, and so I think this is important because, you know, number one, many patients uh, who uh, get lymphoma are older, and two, many of them get cardiotoxic therapies in their path to ultimately hopefully getting cured from their lymphoma, the big one obviously being anthracycline. And so is there some, you know, potential additive risk in the setting of uh, baseline CHIP that may lead to inferior outcomes, uh, especially uh, when we're looking at this um, cardiovascular risk, as I hope I've demonstrated is particularly relevant in um, this population. And so they end up sequencing around 800 or so patients that were um, undergoing auto uh, uh, for, uh, I think it's a variety of different lymphoma types uh, where they had banked um, DNA samples um, from the peripheral blood. And so, you know, it was a pretty diverse cohort. They found that CHIP was, you know, pretty prevalent and um, the mutations that they found were kind of the common players in these cancer cohorts. So DNMT3A, TET2, but also these DNA damage response um, uh, genes, TP53 being uh, one that we're all aware of, but then this other one that's come up in a lot of different CHIP studies, PPM1D. And so um, I think the interesting findings uh, were that the patients who had CHIP that underwent auto actually had a higher cumulative incidence of cardiovascular disease compared to the patients without CHIP. Um, in addition, um, the presence of CHIP um, was uh, associated um, with uh, a shorter survival compared to the patients without CHIP. And so, you know, I think the way that I would think about this is this may be an additive risk factor to outcomes with auto, not only with respect to overall survival, which has been seen in um, other trials, but also with respect to some of the, you know, downstream cardiovascular complications that can occur in uh, cancer survivorship. So, 
that one interests me. I think it also links to a study that we uh, just published um, at or presented, excuse me, at ASCO in the summer, um, looking at a large series of patients actually with prostate cancer in CHIP, where we found an association with um, patients uh, who have CHIP and then an added incidence of cardiovascular AEs when um, being treated with an androgen, androgen receptor pathway inhibitor. And so hopefully we publish that in the next, you know, several months. Um, but I think it maybe can help in the risk benefit discussion. You know, I wouldn't draw a, you know, a conclusion saying they shouldn't get, you know, whatever intervention they need for their cancer. I'm always of the belief you have to treat the cancer, you know, you have, as opposed to kind of, you know, the one you may get downstream, you know, with chip having an increased risk of hematologic malignancies, but also, you know, these other downstream complications, obviously there's the immediate issue, but I think it is helpful in um, informing late-term toxicity uh, to learn more about these uh, implications. Yeah, I mean, I, I you know, it's uh, listening to you. I mean, some of these could be like, you know, one of these, like you said, clinical variables are prognostic, right? I mean, we know, for example, uh, sometimes the degree of PET positivity prior to autologous transplant might impact what the outcome is. Doesn't mean you don't do the autologous transplant. Um, so that's obviously uh, really important. I, I really think, and maybe I'm way off here, but I, 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 I like the idea of understanding the downstream implication because thus it just helps counseling patients. Again, it may not really, it might really make you decide you're going to, you know, if somebody has a very high risk of developing cardiovascular disease, you already gave anthracyclines and underwent autologous transplant and they have a chip and they are older and they have other risk factors. I don't know, maybe the cardiologist will want to say, I mean, maybe we'll, it's like almost survivorship. Like, let's do an echo on this guy. Let's do X, Y, and Z. So I, I think there's a there's an element where you, when you have more information, you could possibly leverage this information to help patients. So I'm a big proponent of that. Uh, the, in, the active intervention, I share your concern. You know, if you really want to do something and give a drug, that drug better be safe and you better know what endpoint and it must be with a clinical trial until you figure out if it's, you're doing the right thing. Yeah, totally. And, you know, to speak to what you um, mentioned, um, I, I there are scenarios where I think knowing about CHIP can influence the decision. I don't think that's a huge number, but, you know, there are a lot of things in oncology where it's not black and white. There's a gray zone. And so, you know, in my CHIP clinic at UNC, I had a patient who underwent germline testing um, and was found to have this not fully clonal, um, so a variant of frequency, you know, maybe in the 10 to 20% range, TP53 mutation. She was on a PARP inhibitor. And I think what we've learned is, you know, PARP inhibitors definitely are associated with an increased risk of TMNs. And when weighing the risk benefit with her and her gynecologic oncologist, she is not someone with, you know, the DNA damage repair where they, you know, maybe get this improved benefit from the PARP inhibitor. And, and we ended up, you know, taking her off of it. Um, but it, that's not a decision I can make in isolation because I don't really know all the solid tumor data intimately. And it, I think it stresses the importance of collaboration when it comes to kind of these really, you know, high risk, um, patients, um, and the individual scenario and the risk benefit. So I think more information is better. Is it enough to test patients uniformly? I don't think we're there yet, but I think um, when it, it comes up in, in these situations, which, you know, there's a million situations, chip 
can come up, which we didn't even get into, but selfie DNA, you know, this happens a lot. The filtering techniques are better. You can find it on, you know, unmatched tumor sampling, um, germline testing, et cetera. I think um, it's, it's uh, can be helpful with uh, these discussions. I know we're getting tight on time and you've been very generous giving us some time. Is there anything, other things pressing that you would want to share with listeners? Uh, tease them a little bit. Are we good? Um, I think we're good. I, I already gave my best San Diego dinner tip. So um, I think we're good. <laughs> I'm looking forward to the meeting and seeing everyone. And I'm looking forward to reading more about your work at uh, at SHIP and looking forward to reading the paper from, from ASCO. I think I think, you know, in my view, one of the biggest issues with CHIP, and maybe that would be a nice way to conclude this podcast, which is if you really detect something and you think it's actually a real deal, as opposed to CHIP, which we agree, these are not patients, right? Then you could potentially treat these people inappropriately. And, um, you know, I mean, there was a JAMA Oncology paper, senior authors Colin Pritchard on prostate specifically to speak of which was published, I think, a couple of years ago now. You know, it was a single institution from the Hutch looking at uh, their patients and showed about 10% of the patients that they sequenced had a chip alteration. And some of these patients potentially could have been treated with a PARP inhibitor because they actually had the the, um, the, the chip that was detected was uh, BRCA, was BRCA2. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, so we both uh, uh, caution everybody to to really read more about this and and follow you on Twitter. What's your Twitter handle? Uh, Callie Coombs, MD. There you go. Yes. Dr. Coombs, <laughs> Callie Coombs, thank you so much for spending some time with me on the Hemang Pulse. And I look forward to seeing you soon and to having you once again on this podcast and many other podcasts. Thank you so much. Sounds good. Thank you.